right. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Mark. If you would turn again to Acts chapter 13, and we want to continue looking at what the Lord has to say to us through this chapter. This chapter is about the first journey, missionary journey that Paul took, and how God brought the gospel to Gentiles, which if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. And so we can be thankful for what God did um, through Paul and Barnabas and through others. And so we want to think about how it applies to us, obviously, today in terms of those in our own lives who don't know Christ, whether they're family members, extended family members, friends, co-workers, or otherwise. And um, the goal is to love. And this chapter, I think, has a lot to say about that and how we can do that. And so look at this point at verse 26. We want to uh, pick up the story uh, in Turkey. They've left Syria, which is north of Israel. Uh, They went to Cyprus, which is an island. Then they left Cyprus and went to the mainland again. And they're in a city in what is now currently Turkey. And Paul And Barnabas have been invited to speak in the synagogue after the reading of the scripture. And Paul is in the midst of talking to the Jews who are there and Gentiles who are called God-fearers, those who uh, honor and respect the God of Israel. And so look at verse 26, and we'll read this passage together um, as we honor the Lord in this way. It says in verse 26, Paul speaking, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he also says in another Psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him... Everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Let's pray again. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do pray that you'd help us to realize that the Bible is not just another book. It is truly your word. And it's not just your word for someone else. It's your word for us, for every one of us here. And so please help us to listen that way. And please give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And help us to see how we need to trust you in light of it. Help us to see how to love in light of it. 
And we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we've been mentioning each week since we started talking about Acts 13, a quote from Spurgeon who said, to make ourselves happy, we must make others happy. And he's highlighting the fact that Christians are supposed to pursue their happiness. Uh, We are to pursue our happiness in God through Jesus and what he's done for us. And yet, we're not to pursue our happiness selfishly. We're to pursue our happiness in light of the fact that we are to lay down our lives, that others might also come to know Christ and pursue their happiness in God as well. And that's one reason why the Bible ends the way it does in Revelation 22, in verse 17, when it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And so we're looking at Acts 13 and thinking about what it has to say to us about how we personally, who have heard the gospel and believe the gospel, are to actually offer the water of life to others in our lives who don't know Christ. And um, in your notes, it's not on the board, but in your notes, there are seven applications that I'm trying to help us make and think about from this chapter. We've already talked about the fact that we don't have to be an expert, that the first few verses talk about the fact that there were those set apart, Paul and Barnabas, gifted, called by God to go out and preach the gospel in other places, in other cultures, in other nations. But they were called to do what we are called to do. But they were called to do it in another place, in another way, with a special gifting for that. But we are still called to do the same kind of thing. We're still called to bear witness to Christ and to share the message of salvation. And so we we want to just remind ourselves, and uh, these messages are as much for me as they are for anybody, because if there's any area of my life that I feel weakened, it's in, in sharing the gospel with people as I should. And so I'm trying to encourage myself as well as you, if you feel that same kind of weakness, to first of all remember that weakness is actually reality. We are weak. Even Paul could talk about his own weakness. Uh, We are not adequate for these things. And yet God calls us to be his instruments. And and the reality is uh, God can save even through the words of a little child. I mean, if you remember the story of Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you say his name, uh, God used the words of a little child playing nearby who said, take up and read, take up and read. And God used that little child's words to cause him to think that I need to get my Bible and read my Bible. And he opened it up and he turned to the book of Romans. He read a verse and God saved him. Just the words of a little child. And so God can use us in ways that we don't even realize and we don't have to be experts in order to do that. We just need to worship the God who has a heart to save people. And as we worship him and honor him with our lips and our lives, God can use us in that way. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard because uh, the world is going to push back. And yet we don't want to give up simply because it's hard. We want to stick to it, keep loving people, play the long game. And those are the things we've talked about so far. Which brings me to what I want to talk about especially today, which is number four in your notes, which is focus on the basics. One of the things that you won't find in the Bible is Paul or Peter or John saying, now let me give you a short gospel presentation that you can use with all your family and friends. You don't find that. You you don't find, um, you know, Five steps to lead somebody to Christ or anything like that in the Bible. What you find is truth that we're to proclaim. And I think there's a reason why God hasn't given us, you know, a little track like people come up with. But there's nothing wrong with tracks. Nothing wrong with short, brief, succinct gospel presentations. The point is God hasn't given us from heaven 
a track. He hasn't given us in the Bible a short gospel presentation that is supposed to be a one-size-fits-all kind of thing that no matter who you're talking to, whether they're five years old or 50 years old, whether they're someone that's native to your country or not native to your country, just say this. The Bible doesn't give us that. But the Bible does tell us um, the kinds of things we need to talk with people about. And it depends on the situation, depends on the person, depends on where they are, uh, what we need to do. And the way I think that it's most helpful to think about is that we just need to understand what the basics of the gospel are. We need to be grounded in the basics and pray that God would help us to apply that in whatever situation I'm in so that I may start uh, with one truth at one point with one person and start at a totally different place with another person. It's not about working through these five points that God laid out in the book of Romans per se, if you understand what I'm saying. it kind of It's kind of like I mentioned before, um, Vince Lombardi was a famous football coach. He's very famous for what he did for like the last seven seasons that he coached. Even though he was coaching people who knew the game of football, they were professional football players, uh, he would walk in at the first practice of every season and he would hold up a football and say, gentlemen, this is a football. And then he'd say, open your playbook and let's talk about tackling and let's talk about blocking. Let's talk about all the fundamental things that you have to do to be successful. And he would take them out onto the field and say, okay, uh, this is the football field, and these are the sidelines, and these are the end zones. And you want to get into the end zone, you want to keep the other guys out of the end zone. He would keep it very simple, and he'd start off every year that way. And why would he do that? Because he knew that the greatest problem that his team would have is losing sight of the fundamentals. Everything begins to break down uh, when you lose sight of the fundamentals. It's the same way in wanting to be used by God in the lives of other people. We have to keep the fundamentals in mind and not be so caught up in all the little details that maybe people might even raise. They might say, well, what about Cain's wife? Where'd she come from? Or all the various things that people can bring up and get us sidetracked uh, rather than just focusing on what is really the basics that people need to understand and that we need to communicate. So I see Paul doing that here in verses 26 through 37. He starts off in verse 26 and he says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. So he says, I just want you to know, God has sent us a message and I'm here to tell you what that message is. And then, if you look in verse 28, he begins talking about Jesus and what happened in the life of Jesus. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. So he says, Jesus was sent and he was rejected by the Jewish people in Jerusalem. They crucified him, even though he was innocent. They buried him, but God raised him from the dead. And what this means is, is that God is fulfilling his promises, that he promised to send the son of David and to raise up a Messiah who would give you the covenant blessings of the Messiah. God has actually done what he said he would do so that you could be blessed. And so he basically just lays out these basic truths and you might remember in 1 Corinthians 15, the Corinthians had the idea that the resurrection had already happened. Well, that was actually that was the Thessalonians. The, the Corinthians actually thought there was no resurrection. And so it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul says, 
Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And he goes on from there. Basically, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says the same thing that he says in Acts chapter 13. And he says these truths, there are basic truths that are just fundamental. They, they are of a first importance. To believe that Jesus lived and died and was buried and rose again are just basic truths that need to be understood and believed because Jesus said it's the truth that sets you free. And he was especially meaning the truth about himself, the truth of the gospel. Um, When you think about later on in the book of Acts, there's the Philippian jailer after the earthquake comes in to Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? And the only thing the Bible records them saying is, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And yet, it goes on to say, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him. So that doesn't mean that was the only thing they said. In the book of Acts chapter 13, when we read what what it says Paul said in the synagogue right there, that's a summary That doesn't mean that's all he said. That's a summary of what he said. It highlights the main points that he was making. And so if we tell someone, you know, you can be saved if you believe in the Lord Jesus. Um, That is, in one sense, sufficient in itself if they understand what that means. But we may have to give a little explanation. But that doesn't mean we have to give a systematic theological explanation. We just need to give a basic understanding of what it means to believe in Jesus. Who is he? What am I to trust him for? What does he promise me? Just some basic things. And because sometimes I think one of the things that keeps us from trying to engage with people is, number one, they will ask questions that are way off the track that we can't answer. Like, what about Cain's wife? You know, where did God come from? And all kinds of more complicated questions. And we just have to try to keep it on, on the uh, focus of the need for uh, forgiveness and salvation. And we may think that we have to be able to answer even all the questions that could be raised about... Um, all kinds of things about who Jesus is and what he did. But the point is, if God can use a child who just gives a very childlike explanation of the gospel, then he can use any of us. We we shouldn't be hindered by thinking we don't know enough. We can tell people what we do know. We should want to grow in understanding, but we can still tell people what we don't know. There's an interesting parable where it's the parable of the sower and the sower is going along and um, he's spreading seed across the ground indiscriminately. Seed is a very small thing. And there are four types of ground. There's the hard, there's the rocky, there's the thorny, and there's the good soil. The same seed is being cast on every soil. And so what makes the difference in that parable? It says the good soil actually bears fruit it's the only soil that bears fruit what makes the difference was the seed different not in and of itself it was essentially the same what was different was the soil which highlights the fact that the real issue is god's work in people's hearts it's not whether or not i give a perfect gospel presentation god is the one who saves people God is the one who takes the truth and applies it to people's lives. But we are to cast the seed. And that seed could be a very small word, a very small truth that God uses to save people. 
um, there was a lawyer who went to see um, someone one day about some legal matters, and this guy who needed the legal help was a Christian. And at one point, he said, um, you know, I'm kind of hesitant talking to the lawyer. I'm kind of hesitant, but there's something I'd really like to know. And so the lawyer said, well, what do you want to know? And the guy said, well, I want to know why you're not a Christian. I'm a Christian. I was just wondering why you aren't a Christian. And this lawyer said, well, you know, you know the problem that I have with drinking. And I know the Bible says, you know, you know, you can't go to heaven if you're a drunkard. And um, the man said, well, I think you're just you're um, you're just dodging the issue. And so the lawyer said, well, you know, beyond that, I don't think anybody's really ever explained to me how to become a Christian. And so the man pulled out his Bible and very simply said, the Bible says that we've, we're all sinners and we're all under condemnation. But Jesus came and he died on a cross for sinners so that we could be forgiven, so we could be saved. And if you're willing to receive Jesus, you can even pray right now and he will save you. And the man said, yes. And so they prayed together and the man confessed his sin of drunkenness and but he asked for forgiveness and he said uh, please deliver me from my sin and the man was saved and the man was um schofield c uh was it c j schofield or c i schofield schofield bible if you're familiar with the bible that has all the notes in it whether you agree with Schofield or not on the notes, uh, God saved him through a very uh, simple explanation of the gospel because he never really heard exactly what the gospel was. And God mercifully saved him. His heart was ready. His heart was ready for that good news. And we never know how God is preparing the hearts of people. And when just a very simple um, statement of the the gospel could be used in somebody's life. Well, what I've put up here today is just a reminder of what um, Jan and I use with our kids. I know um, even with your children, sometimes you might wrestle, how do I talk to my kids about the gospel? And this is what we try to do with our kids. It's nothing anointed about it or anything. It's just one way to try and drive some very simple truths home. And so I just want to talk about this just a little bit this morning, uh, because basically when we talk about the basics of the gospel, we're talking about the truth about God, we're talking about the truth about man, we're talking about the truth about Jesus, we're talking about the truth about faith, and we're talking about the truth about love, because that's what the Bible is really about, God, us, Jesus, faith, and love. And so there's one sense in which when we're interacting with those who aren't Christians, what we want to know is, what do they think about God? Do they think about God? And if they think about God, what do they think about God? And why do they think that about God? And hopefully, even as we ask questions and listen, it will give us the opportunity to tell them what we believe the Bible reveals about God. And at the heart of it is that God is good, that Uh, We live in a world filled with sin and evil, but the God who created this world is not sinful and he's not evil. He's truly good. In fact, he's the supreme good. He's the only one who can satisfy our souls. Psalm 90, for instance, says, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. That's why I say in one sense, witnessing or evangelizing is simply worshiping in front of unbelievers. It's speaking well of God in front of people who don't see God as good, don't see God as as worthy of worship, and reminding them that the Bible says that we were created by God to be holy and happy, to be like Him and to enjoy Him. And that that is truly good news, that their desire for happiness is God-given. But God gave them that desire for happiness to drive them to him, not away from him. And so the 
it's very important that we think about what we're going to say about God when the t- opportunity comes. What, what do we want to talk to someone about God? Um, secondly, and I'm just going to spend just a few minutes on these because we don't have a whole lot of time, but let me, again, let me just say, under these topics, as you read through your Bible and as you hear preaching and as you do studies, God is teaching you about God. God is teaching you about man. He's teaching you about Jesus and faith and love. He's basically filling in those simple statements. And so think about it that way, that when you read your Bible, uh, say, God, teach me more about these basic truths that I need to believe and that I want to communicate to other people. And so God... Uh, teaches us about himself and about why we're here, why he created us. Secondly, man is an idol worshiper, which simply means we were created to worship God, to find our help in God, our happiness in God, and we've turned away from God. Now we're looking someplace else. We're worshiping something else besides God. And that's really what's wrong with the world. If There's a lot of stuff going on, and you could ask somebody, what do you think is wrong with the world? Just like you could ask someone, what do you think about God? What do you believe is true about God? Do you even believe in God? You could also ask, what do you think is wrong with our country? Why is everything going in the direction that it's going? Or a particular person, why do you think that person did what they did? You can just have just normal conversations with people just asking questions like, so, so what do you think is wrong? In Romans 1, it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans 1 tells us that the fundamental problem is that we are created to find our help and happiness in God and we've worshiped the creation instead. We worship people, we worship things, we worship whatever the world has to offer and we've not looked to God for what we need. And that is the real problem, that the Bible tells us that if we worship something other than God, we will mistreat people. You don't, you don't become a better, more understanding, more kind, more loving person by rejecting the God who is love. And so the whole argument that, you know, we'll be a better more uh, inclusive and more compassionate country if we just reject God is a lie from the pit of hell. It is the path to hell. It is uh, the way for things to become hellish in our country to say we can be better people without God. It just doesn't work that way. God is the one who actually enables us to love people and be gracious and kind and all those things. And so our biggest problem is that we've forsaken God. As it says in Jeremiah 2, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Again, we can identify with people who want to be happy. They just think that they can be happy apart from God. They think they can be happy without having their sins forgiven. And it's just not true. And so we want people to be truly happy. But we, all, we know that it only comes in God and through Jesus. Which brings us to the third point. Jesus is the double cure. Um, there, there are those, like if you were to witness to a, a Muslim, my understanding is they'd be glad to talk with you about Jesus. But they like to talk about religion. And so you could ask him, so what do you think about Jesus? Who is Jesus from your perspective? And you can do that with anyone. And um, the, the, the important point, obviously, is to find out whether or not they see Jesus as anything more than a man, a good teacher, and whether or not Jesus has done anything that's essential for them to be right with God, or if he's just an optional kind of person. You know, he's a good person to follow, good example to follow, whatever it might be. It says in 1 Peter 3, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, 
so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Basically says two things there. That Jesus died for our sins, but he did it as a just person. The just for the unjust. That's why we say Jesus is the double cure, because there are two things that have to happen for me to go to heaven. My sins have to be forgiven, and I have to have a perfect record of obedience. So those two things, I have to be forgiven for what I've done wrong and I have to fulfill all that I need to do. I have to do everything right. It's both of those things. And the Bible says Jesus died so that we could be forgiven of what we've done wrong and he lived the perfect life and gives us the credit for it. Because the Bible says God blesses the righteous. He blesses those who are righteous, not the unrighteous. But I'm unrighteous, so how could God ever bless me? Because Christ gives me his righteousness. He gives me his perfect record of obedience, and he pays the penalty for my unrighteousness. And that's why he's the double cure. And so what we think about Jesus is important because ultimately all of us deal with guilt. And like I've said before, there are plenty of... um, psychologists and psychiatrists who don't believe in Christ who would say, if I could just help people with their guilt issues, I could clean out a lot of these uh, mental institutions. Because all of us are weighed down with our guilt more than we realize. We carry the guilt of not uh, measuring up. And Jesus came to deliver us from that guilt before God and to set us free. Um, That's part of what Paul is saying in in, uh, Acts 13 when he talks about being freed from all things, being freed from the guilt that comes by looking at the law of Moses and realizing I don't measure up. Jesus sets us free. Then fourthly, it talks about, we need to talk about not only God, uh, people as sinners and what Jesus has done, but, but what to do. What do we do in light of that truth? And that's where faith comes in, that faith is trust in the promises. There are a lot of people who will say, I believe in Jesus, that will not go to heaven. If what they mean by that is, I believe that Jesus lived, I believe Jesus was a good man, I even believe he rose from the dead, I believe he's actually the son of God, but I'm not trusting him for anything, not anything significant. I might be trusting him to maybe set a good example for me or trusting him to help me with my finances. But when it comes to my righteousness before God and the forgiveness of my sins, I'm not really trusting him for that. So the issue, even when we're talking to people that have a background in religion and may even have been baptized before, the question is, What are you trusting Jesus for? Not whether you just believe in Jesus, but what are you trusting him for? Are you trusting him for something? Because it says in John, there were those who believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Why was that? Because they saw his miracles. There was a sense in which they believed in him, but they weren't believing in him in the sense of trusting him for who he was, Lord and Savior. And so the real issue is, am I trusting in Jesus for all that God has promised us? He's promised us the forgiveness of sins. He's promised us the eternal life. And am I trusting Jesus for that, for the forgiveness of my sins and for eternal life? In Romans 4.20, it says, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So In Romans 4, it's talking about Abraham. Abraham is the the prototype believer. And the faith that he had was a faith that ultimately trusted in what God promised. And God says, in Jesus, I promise you everything. So that if you entrust yourselves to Jesus, you will receive everything that I've promised. So the Bible says, in Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen. It's all yes and amen in Jesus. And so ultimately, the question is, where am I looking for my ultimate good? 
Am I trusting Jesus for that? Then finally, well, let me just say one more thing about that. The whole issue of faith is is helpful to think about in this way, especially if we're talking to children. We're wondering, how can I communicate faith? Spurgeon talks about this, and he says, you know what? If you take an apple and you hold it out to your child, um, what does faith look like? He says, faith looks like that child taking their hand and taking the um, apple out of your hand. That's what faith looks like. Because when we share the gospel, we're like the parent who's holding out the apple. This is what God offers you. Will you take it? Faith is the hand that takes what God offers. He says, what the child's hand is to the apple, that your, that your faith is to the perfect salvation of Christ. The child's hand does not make the apple, nor improve the apple, nor deserve the apple. It is content to humbly, simply, and simply receive the apple. And he goes on and he talks about the verse that we're talking about in Revelation 22. He says, faith is the hand which grasps. Faith hears of the parting blood and cries, I accept it to pardon me. He says, take, O friend, that which grace has provided for you. You will not be a thief, for you have a divine permit. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So again, he's talking about the very same thing we're talking about, is that we're telling people, that God offers you exactly what you need and really what you desire in Jesus. Will you take it? Will you take it by faith? Will you receive it by faith and receive Jesus? The last thing about love, love being the obedience of faith, is, again, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the different kinds of belief. Love is the evidence that I'm truly trusting Christ. Because the Bible says love is basically obedience to the word of God. It's obedience to the will of God. And so if I'm trusting Jesus in a way that moves me to want to live to please him by obeying the Bible, then I can have assurance that my faith is real. But if I have some kind of nebulous belief in Jesus that causes me to just live the way I want to live, the Bible says that's not saving faith. Real trust in Jesus is I'm trusting him for my guilt problem and I'm trusting him for my good, which means I am looking to him for forgiveness and I'm looking to him to make me happy. And so if I'm really looking to him to deliver me from my sin and to make me happy, then I will embrace what he says I am to do. That's the the whole thing, that if I really believe someone has my good, and mine, and they really want me to be fully and forever happy, then why would I say, no, thank you, I don't want to listen to you? Because it's only for my own good to listen to them. And that's why the Bible says in Galatians 5, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. True saving faith works, and it produces love, which love is obedience to the word of God. Not perfect, just asking the question, what's the tra- trajectory of my life? You know, where am I facing? Am I wanting to grow in my life and being pleasing to God? Or am I really just not concerned about that? And so as we communicate the gospel, and as it's talked about in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, it emphasizes the fact that we're saved solely by what Jesus did for us. But like the reformers said, We're saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. That faith is a faith that's going to move me to seek to love like God calls me to love. Not perfectly, and that's why I still rest in what Jesus did. Which brings me to this next point, and I'll spend just the rest of the time on this. That at the heart of all these basic truths is the idea of presenting Jesus to people as an able and willing Savior. There's an interesting story about the Moravian missionaries who went to Greenland. And they went to Greenland and they spent months and months basically just telling people about God 
and about sin and kind of, I assume, kind of walking them through the Old Testament. And there is this approach in evangelism where you kind of start in Genesis, you kind of work your way through the Old Testament, and then some years down the line you get to Jesus. So you can take quite a while before they even hear about Jesus. And according to this story, the Moravians did something very similar for, for a number of months, not years in this case. And then by happenstance, one of the people they're working with read the verse that says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And so this person in green then is talking to the missionary and says, What's that all about? And the man was working with him and said, oh, he's not going to be able to understand this, but I'll go ahead and tell him because we're, you're way ahead of the game. Uh, but he began talking about Jesus and how uh, Jesus is the one that God sent to save us. And the man gets saved. He's converted. And many, many other people begin to get saved too. And they come to the missionaries at one point and they said, why did you not tell us this before? We knew all about there being a God and that um, that did no good. Why did you not come and tell us to believe in Jesus Christ before? So what's the point? The point is not um, all you have to say is believe in Jesus. That's not the point. We do need to talk about the context of God and sin and all the things that I just mentioned. But... We need to get to Jesus as quickly as possible. And we are to emphasize that it's all about Jesus. Yes, we talk about God. We talk about sin. We talk about a lot of different things. But the point is getting to Jesus. He is the whole point of it all. And that's what Paul does in verse 38 when he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things. And so he does tell them other things. And we can assume that the sermon that he preached was much longer than what Luke records. But he highlights the fact that he gets very much to the point of you can be forgiven through Jesus. That's the whole point of why Jesus came. And so there's a sense in which people aren't simply to hear about truth. They are to be extended an invitation to believe. That we are to actually say, you know what? You can be saved. Jesus is ready and willing and able to save you. And that's very important that we do that, even with our own children. That we tell them, that Jesus is able and willing to save you. Um, you think about John chapter 4. Um, in John chapter 4, you've got the story of the woman at the well. You've got Jesus who sits down. The woman comes out to the well. He asks her for a drink of water. And she says, why are you talking to me? Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He kind of cuts to the chase. He says, you know what? If you really knew who I am and if you really knew what I could give you, you would ask me for it. Think about that. Which I think is a way of thinking about offering people the water of life we need to explain to people what the gift is that God offers. What does God offer you? It's not just about theological truth. It's about what God promises us, what God offers us. And that's what I'm talking about when I say offer. I'm saying God promises people forgiveness. God promises them eternal life if they will receive Jesus. That's a promise from God. That he, he would say, I'd rather die than not fulfill that promise. I promise you if you trust Jesus, you will be forgiven. I promise you if you trust Jesus, you will have eternal life. And we're to tell people that. 
or to explain that there's a gift being offered you. We're just not talking about theological stuff. We're talking about an offer of life. And we're to explain who the giver is. He said to her, if you, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew what God actually offers you, and if you knew who it is who says to you, give me a drink. If you knew who I am, if you knew the God that offers you that, then you would simply ask him. It matters not only what we say about what God offers people, but how we present the one who's making the offer. We're not offering people that. We cannot give them that. God is the one who's offering them life. And we are to speak well of him. We're to tell them this is the one who offers you life. He is able and willing to do that. And then we can tell them all you have to do is to receive it. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't merit it. You receive it. And so the heart of our message is very much about who Jesus is, what he did, and what he offers. And I think that's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 2, excuse me, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Does that mean he didn't talk about anything else? No, it just means that that was his focus. That he never got very far away from Jesus and the cross. And when we're talking to people, we don't want to get too far away from Jesus and the cross. We want to talk about all we need to talk about. In terms of God and man, sin and all those things. But we need to keep coming back to Jesus and the cross. Because that is at the heart of what the gospel is all about. And we have to really believe that we have a gospel for everyone that um, it it is true what it says in Isaiah 55 ho everyone who thirsts come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without cost why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance incline your ear and come to me Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. That is God speaking. And the reality is, when I share the gospel, when you share the gospel, regardless of how brief it is, regardless of what aspect of the gospel you're talking about, God is speaking through that. God is making an offer and saying that I promise you Forgiveness and eternal life and all that you need and all that you desire if you will receive my son. Obviously, um, Spurgeon talks about the fact that sometimes, many times, when people are um, confronted with the gospel or they have people talking to them about the gospel, they feel like the lady who um, had a pastor come by one time, the pastor came by uh, because he heard that this lady needed some financial help so he knocks on the door and he's ready to give her some help financially but she never comes to the door so the next day um, at church he sees her and says hey i came came by your house and i I guess you weren't home she said what time do you come by oh i came by about noon she said oh i was home but i thought you were the man collecting the rent so i didn't answer the door And Spurgeon says at the beginning of his book um, on the gospel and and talking about things that hinder people from coming to Christ, he says, don't think that I'm here to ask from you rent money. I'm not here to get something from you. I'm here to give you something. I'm here to offer you something. That's the gospel. God offers us something. He's not saying, I want you to earn something. He says, I want to give you something. And we're to tell people, God wants to give you something. Will you receive it? Um, Obviously, there's all kinds of things that make that difficult for us, especially as Calvinists. There was a Calvinist who said this. um, He said, there are two ditches on either side of what the Bible has to say about this issue. 
There's hyper-Calvinism, which is all house and no door. Arminianism is all door and no house. So think about the picture there. He says, on the one side, we can say, there's no free offer of the gospel to every single person we meet. It's only to those that we know God is going to save. And he says, that's all house and no door. Jesus came and has provided a salvation, but uh, nobody can get in because there's no door to get in that house. There's no off, real offer of salvation there. There's nobody saying the door is open, come on in. But on the other side, you could say it's all door and no house. Meaning on the Arminian side, you've got those who would say we don't believe God is sovereign over salvation and we don't believe Jesus actually accomplished anything on the cross per se. It's all door and no house. There's no substance being offered. And so the point is we have to be careful of these theological considerations and being so afraid that, well, maybe, you know, if I actually communicate to somebody that God is actually offering them life, uh, maybe he's not. Maybe, maybe he's really not doing that. And the Bible says over and over again, yes, God is sovereign over salvation and Jesus purchased a people on the cross and go tell people that God promises you, if you will trust in his son, you will be forgiven and you will have eternal life. All those things are true. And so we shouldn't let <clears throat> our theological misgivings in terms of how do you explain all that keep us from actually having good news to talk with people and to share people, or share with people. Um, Spurgeon says, All our Lord's sermons were so many loving calls to poor, aching hearts to come and find what they need in him. Beloved, there is nothing that so delights Jesus Christ as to save sinners. You misjudge him if you think he wants to be argued with and persuaded to have mercy. He gives it as freely as the sun pours forth light. And the point is, that's the Jesus we want to portray to all people. That Jesus is able to save you, he's willing to save you. If you will receive what God offers. Um, There's another illustration that Spurgeon uses where somebody says, you know what, I think I might trust Christ if I really believed that he truly invites me, that I'm really welcome to come to him. And so he tells a story about this employer who was working with his employee. The employer is a Christian and he decides, based on what this employee is, is saying about, I just don't think I'm free to come. The employer invites this employee to come to his house after hours. And the employee comes to the employer's house after hours. The employer opens the door and says, what are you doing here? Why did you come to my house? And the employee says, you invited me. In fact, you told me to come. And the man said, exactly. Come on in. The point is, that's exactly what God does to every single person who hears the gospel. He says, I'm inviting you. In fact, I'm commanding you to come in. Therefore, you have every right to believe that I will welcome you. We have to be careful of thinking that maybe they shouldn't believe that they have the right to come. Maybe they shouldn't believe that God will welcome them. Maybe they're not one of the elect. So why should I imply that God would actually welcome them? Well, I should imply that because God tells me to. He tells me to tell them that they are welcome. He tells me to tell them that there is a real, legitimate, genuine offer of life. And we're to, to, to communicate that to people. Jesus is an able and willing Savior. There's a um, sermon that Alistair Begg has preached recently, I think, and you may have heard it. It's kind of made its rounds. He's actually preaching, I think, in the context of how important it is for us as Christians to preach the gospel to ourselves. Because it's very easy for us, even as Christians, to move away from the cross and to move away into a faith 
plus works kind of mentality. And he, at one point in his sermon, he begins to say, you remember how um, the evangelism explosion presentation of the gospel starts? It starts off with the question, if you were to die tonight and go to heaven um, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And Alistair Begg says, you know, if I begin my response to God by saying, because I. He says, we're on the wrong foot from the beginning. If I start off by saying, because I believed or I continued in my faith or I did this or I did that. He says, okay, you're on, you're on bad ground right there. The answer is, because of he, because he, because Jesus died for sinners. And I'm a sinner. That's why I'm here. And he asks the question, he says, think about the thief on the cross. He says, I'd really look forward to getting to heaven one day and talking to the thief on the cross. And ask him some questions because I want to ask him, you know, at one point you were cussing Jesus out with your friend. You know, you guys were talking bad about Jesus and and um, all these kinds of things. And he says, um, you were doing that sort of thing on the cross. And even before that, uh, you'd never been to a Bible study and um, you didn't know anything about church membership or anything like that. And then you made it to heaven. So how'd you make it? How did it happen? What happened? Tell me about that. Obviously, he's just imagining this kind of conversation. And he says, let's just think about <clears throat> when that thief on the cross actually died, <clears throat> excuse me, and went to heaven. <clears throat> excuse me. Imagine him at the pearly gates. <clears throat> Excuse me, so to, so to speak. Excuse me. And so this thief is at the pearly gates, and there's an angel there, and uh, the angel says to him, what are you doing here? And the thief on the cross says, well, um, what do you mean? I, I don't know why I'm here. <clears throat> and... Um, And the angel says, well, what do you mean you don't know? And he says, because I don't know. I don't know why I'm here. And he says, well, um, the angel says, well, let me get my supervisor. And so he gets the angel supervisor and comes back. And and the supervisor says something along the lines of, we got a few questions for you before we can go any further. And he says, "Uh, tell me, what is your understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone? And he says, I never heard of it. And the uh, supervisor angel says, you're kidding me. You've never heard of that doctrine? Okay, let's get even more basic than that. What do you think about the Bible and the sufficiency of Scripture? Do you believe that? And the guy just kind of stares. Kind of like, I don't know anything about that doctrine. And so the angel says, well, I'm not sure what to say. Um, In frustration, he just kind of says, so on what basis are you even here? And his answer is, the man on the middle cross said I could come. It's the only reason I'm here. The man on the middle cross said I would be with him today in paradise. That's the only reason I'm here. It's not because I know theology. It's not because I understand exactly how God saves sinners. It's because I trusted that man on the middle cross and he said I would be today with him in paradise. That's all I know. All I know is I knew just some basic things. I knew that he wasn't a criminal. I knew he didn't deserve what he got on the cross. I knew he was actually a king and that he had a kingdom. And I asked him to remember me when he came into his kingdom and he said he would. And I believe he did. I'm here because the man on the middle cross said I could come. And Alistair Begg uh, says, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon 
me. The point is that we're not trying to get people to look at themselves and trust in anything that they do. We're trying to exalt Jesus and encourage them to simply look on who he is and what he did and believe that he's enough and what he did is enough and that he saves sinners. And that truly is the good news that we want to communicate. Let's pray. Father, we just pray and ask that you would help all of us, myself, all of us here, help us to just be encouraged in our own walk with you to remember that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. It's only because of the man on the middle cross who is not simply a man but God in the flesh who lived and died and rose again on our behalf. It's because of him that we can believe that we are forgiven and that eternal life is ours and that you, through us, are offering that same gift through our speaking well of you and speaking well of Jesus to those in our lives. Help us, Father, as we seek to grow in this. Help us to grow in our own worship of you and help us to grow in our own communication of the good news of an able and willing Savior to sinners. We love and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.